You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 5 this morning. We started the series a few weeks ago, and we're continuing on in that today. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 is found on page 401 of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that John, John just mentioned. The ends justify the means. Uh, this is a phrase that you might not ever say. Uh, it's a phrase that we might not believe, but uh, we function that way in daily life, do we not? We're running late, and so the end of arriving somewhere on time justifies the means of speeding or driving like a lunatic to get there. Uh, our kids are acting crazy. And so the end of getting them to calm down justifies whatever means of behavior modification that we can come up with in that moment. Shouting, begging, bribing, whatever it might be. Or there's a job or a promotion opportunity at your work. And the end of getting that job justifies the means of talking yourself up to a crazy level or talking other candidates down. This is how we function in our little kingdoms, in our kingdoms. But in God's kingdom, the ends don't justify the means. The means always matter. And that will often make the kingdom of God appear inefficient and unproductive and slow. Because in order to care about the means, you have to pause sometimes. You have to sacrifice the timeline, the energy, the money, the momentum, whatever it might be, in order to go about doing things the right way. In Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah, we're going to read this this morning, calls a public assembly. Calls a public assembly. To do that, he stops construction of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. Now, if you've been following along with us and studying this book, you know that's something he does not do. Rather than slow down in the face of continual opposition and threat from enemies, Nehemiah has his laborers carry their materials in one arm and weapons in another. Or he has them still building on the wall with their swords strapped at their sides. But here, he stops. Why? Because in God's kingdom, the ends don't justify the means. And Nehemiah has been called to an incredibly important end rebuilding the walls of the city of God, the place where God dwells with his people. Rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. This is the capstone of God's redeeming, saving work. He's bringing his people out of exile after 150 years, bringing them back into their own land, into their own place. But even with such an important end, the means matter. And actually, they matter that much more. And so we'll read in this chapter that the people of Jerusalem are are vulnerable And they're suffering. They're suffering from hunger, from debt, from injustice. And they're suffering at the hands of their own people, which is an ironic horror. Jerusalem is supposed to be different. It's supposed to be a place where the people of God are free to pursue faithfulness to him. And so if the Jews of Jerusalem are going to exploit one another, if they're going to treat each other no differently than their captors and oppressors, why bother with walls and gates? What's the point? 
Life is going to be no different for them than it was in exile. Rebuilding a place for God's people only matters if they're actually going to live like God's people. It only matters if they're actually going to live like God's people. And Nehemiah gets this. He's not so tunnel vision focused on this task of rebuilding that he misses the point. Centuries later, Jesus is speaking to Jewish religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, he says to them, Woe to you, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, even from your spices, in other words, Jesus says. You're tithing from your spices, but you have neglected the weightier matters, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, in their aim to be obedient, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day missed the most important thing. They missed the point. And so Nehemiah 5 is, is perhaps a more unknown part of this book that we are studying together this fall. In this story, in this account that's all about building and all about accomplishing something good for God, Nehemiah here in this chapter stops and he refuses to let the end justify faithless means. He pursues those weightier matters of justice and mercy. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Nehemiah chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children as are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, verse 10, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years... 
neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of this generation, speak now your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. We pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. Amen. Amen. The point of a rebuilt Jerusalem is not the structures. It's so that that God's people can faithfully live like God's people. And because of this in chapter 5, we see Nehemiah pursue both justice and mercy. And those are the two things that we'll look at with the rest of our time this morning. Justice and mercy. So first, justice. Verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives. Throughout this account, um, you're going to hear parallels between the book of Nehemiah and the book of Exodus. So in the book of Exodus, God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. Here, he brings them out of exile. Um, God fights for his people. We saw that in Nehemiah 4 last week, that God goes to fight for his people. And then here, an outcry. So early on in the book of Exodus, an outcry from the people reaches the ears of God. And it sets in motion God's great work of deliverance for his people. The huge and the horrible difference here in Nehemiah 5 is now... It's their own brothers who are oppressing them. And the irony of this, which is spelled out even more down there in in, uh, in verse 8, is that these are men and women who have just been bought back and set free from from slavery in exile. But they're now being sold again. They're being re-enslaved among their own people. Now, this did not happen overnight. Instead, these opening five verses here, they detail a downward spiral that has been playing out there in Jerusalem and in Judah. So first, hunger. There's hunger, a lack of adequate food. Some of that we read there is due to a famine. Some of it is directly tied to the building project, to rebuilding the walls. Because it's not like Nehemiah went out and hired a construction company to take care of this work. In an agrarian culture, the majority of the people building these walls are people who would normally be, be spending their days raising livestock and tending fields. And so when they are building the wall, they're not doing that, which means they don't have enough food. Not enough food is being produced. And so second, they then mortgage their fields. They need money to both buy food they're not producing and to pay this, the heavy taxes that are levied on them uh, by the Persian Empire, by the Persian king. And so they borrow money, they use their land as collateral to do that. 
Third, when they can't repay their debts, they lose their fields. They don't just mortgage them, they lose them. Fourth, when they still can't pay their debts and the debts keep mounting, they now revert to selling their own sons and daughters into debt slavery in order to survive. It's important to note some of this is within the bounds of the Mosaic law. Uh, Laws that God revealed to his people, the Israelite people, after they'd been set free from slavery in Egypt. There were provisions in the Mosaic law for debt slavery. uh, When people who were poor and who had no other recourse could sell themselves into servitude. But the provisions in the Mosaic law were that those people then had to be released after six years or when the year of Jubilee came, whichever came first. Lending money was okay, was permissible according to the Mosaic law. But Jews were prohibited from charging fellow Jews interest on debts when they were borrowing because they were poor. You couldn't charge interest to a poor person. And verse 7 here clarifies that at least in some of the cases, they are charging interest to their brothers. They are violating explicitly the laws of God. Here's the thing, though. Even where these practices are in keeping with the letter of God's law, they are blatantly and grievously violating the spirit of it. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, justice is not only concerned with what is legal, it is concerned with what is right. Right in the eyes of God, right according to his design and his plan. And so if in keeping the laws, the letter of them, you neglect the weightier matters, like the Pharisees centuries later, you miss the point. And the laws that were put in place by God about property and about borrowing and about debt servitude, These were provisions always meant to protect people in a vulnerable place. They were meant as a safeguard. It was a way for people in terrible circumstances to get their feet back under them. It was never meant to be something to oppress and to exploit their own people. And Nehemiah here sees the injustice of this. In verse 7 it says he, he brings charges against the Jewish nobles and officials. And when that apparently is not effective... He takes it up to the next step. He calls a great assembly of the people. He stops the work and he calls the people off of the walls, off of the building project to come together to publicly confront those who are expressing and exploiting their own people. A couple things to really pay attention to in this as he does that. First, what's the basis for Nehemiah's anger and his confrontation and his rebuke? What's the basis for that? It's the fear of God. It's the fear of God. Verse 9, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? The reason that God's people pursue justice is because God cares about and pursues justice. And throughout Scripture, we see his heart for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Over and over again, their cry reaches his ears and he rises to act on their behalf. But justice is only justice when it aligns with the heart and the design and the will of God. He is God and we are not. He is the one who, in his justice, calls everyone to account. And the recognition of that, the fear and the reverence of him, it directs and it constrains our pursuit of justice so that we do that only according to his definition of what is right and good. So Nehemiah's indignation here, his rebuke, his confrontation, it's rooted in this. And as he witnesses against these nobles, he's not citing his own opinions, he's citing the law of God. 
In contrast to that, a phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon of our day, social justice warriors, or SJWs, um, they, make, they make some really good and some valid points. But many SJWs, maybe perhaps even most, are untethered, are unanchored, uh, not pursuing justice rooted in the fear of God, but pursuing justice based on majority opinion or a, or a vague feeling, a vague sense of what is right and wrong. And that actually makes their form of justice dangerous. Why? Why? Because untethered from the fear of God, the pursuit of justice will only lead to different forms of oppression, to another flavor of injustice. Near the end of World War II, Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn was sentenced to eight years in a labor camp for writing anti-Soviet propaganda. While he was there, as you might understand, he experienced a deep hatred for the people who put him there. But as he wrestled with that hatred, he had this profound, profound realization, and he writes this, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Confronted with the pit into which we are about to toss those who have done us harm, we halt stricken dumb. It is, after all, only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. Pursue justice, but anchor that pursuit in the fear of God. Otherwise, we will unintentionally become a different kind of oppressor, a different kind of exploiter, even a different kind of executioner. We will perpetrate our own different forms of injustice. Anchored in the fear of God then, Nehemiah is able to recognize, get this, his own contribution to the injustice here and own it and turn from it. Verse 10, he says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us, let us abandon this exacting of interest and return this very day their fields. Nehemiah didn't set out to oppress and exploit his people. Quite the opposite of that, as we see throughout this book. But by offering loans to his people in the midst of this downward spiral, he inadvertently contributed to their oppression. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner puts it this way, legal rights to say nothing of wrongs can deal mortal blows. And he continues and writes this, the depth of poverty here in this moment called for gifts, not loans. Justice in the kingdom of God goes beyond what is legal and concerns itself with what is right. It's legal to offer loans, but it's right to do everything in your power so that the freed people of God remain free. And so Nehemiah here implicates himself. He, imagine the humility this requires. He humbles himself and he owns his own contribution to the oppression. And then he turns from it. And he leads the other nobles to do the same, to take an oath, not only repaying, but immediately returning their property to the people who had mortgaged it. He goes beyond the letter of the law to the spirit, to the weightier matters. He goes beyond the provisions of the law and actually does what is right. And amazingly enough, the nobles join him in repentance. They say to him after he rebukes them, we will do what you say. That is a miracle that they say that right afterwards. We will do what you say. Let that reignite your hope this morning. It did mine as I was in this, in this text this week. That God is powerful 
that God can and does act in our time and place. And in spite of the huge economic incentives and the gains being made by the people here lending money and acquiring land, they stop in a moment and they give it all back. Don't ever let yourself become so cynical to think that God can't do something like that today. When you think about poverty, when you think about human trafficking, when you think about the forms of exploitation and oppression that exist in our day, God can and does act powerfully. Cry out for him to do that. Now what about us? What about us? Is our understanding of justice anchored in the fear of God? And if so, if anchored in the fear of God, are we actually pursuing justice? Or are we just scoffing at the untethered, unanchored attempts of others? Poverty remains a huge issue in our day, in our own region. And often not due to addiction or laziness or any of the other stereotypes. There are systemic downward spirals not altogether different from the one we read about in Nehemiah 5. Uh, over the past few years, I know some of you have gotten to do this, uh, I've heard several friends highly recommend something called a poverty simulation. Poverty simulation. It's a learning experience um, that shows how hard it really is for a person to survive in poverty. So like in this simulation, you lose your, you lose your transportation, and so you can't get to work, and so then you lose your job. You lose your job, so then you can't pay rent. You can't pay rent so that you get evicted. You get evicted so that you're homeless, and then who's really excited to hire a homeless person? A person that can't even list an address, a current address on like an application for a job. So let's recognize this. Let's find ways to love and to come alongside the poor. And likewise, as Nehemiah does here, ask yourself, is there any way that I might be unintentionally exploiting or oppressing people? That I might be contributing to that playing out? Those among us who own businesses or who employ people or anyone who owns a rental property or lends money, there's a reason for people in those situations in life to pay a special kind of attention to this. But even more broadly, in the, the businesses that we patronize, in the places that we spend our money, are we inadvertently contributing to the exploitation and oppression of other image bearers of God? If we are, like Nehemiah, humble yourself and pursue repentance. If the people of God are going to be different, if the real aim for God's people is to live faithfully as God's people, that will always require repentance from us. There will always be things in our lives that our eyes get open to that we need to pursue repentance in. And so in the fear of God, own that, turn from that, go beyond what is legal into what is right. Second, let's talk about mercy. Let's talk about mercy. If justice is going beyond what is legal into what is right, mercy is going beyond entitlement and into compassion into costly, sacrificial love. And in chapter 5, we see this in Nehemiah's own financial generosity. As the governor in Judah, uh, which was a province in the Persian Empire at this point in history, Nehemiah is entitled to some things. There's a food allowance that he can claim. The people uh, of that territory, they're taxed, and some of that tax goes to the mothership, goes to corporate back in Persia. But governors and local officials like Nehemiah, they were permitted to level additional taxes above and beyond that to provide for themselves. 
And as you can imagine, many governors, many officials exploited this and enriched themselves at the expense of their own people. But Nehemiah forgoes his due. He forgoes his entitlement. He breaks precedent with the former governors of the same territory. He, we read here, keeps working on the wall. If, if his people are foregoing their food, if, if they're foregoing working their own land to do this, then he's going to be right there working with them too. And there's a little line in there that says, he also acquired no land, which reveals really the purity of his motives here. Because if you're an opportunist, this is your moment. This is your moment. People who need to eat, and you're the leader with money to spare. By lending, by acquiring land, Nehemiah is in a position here where he could exponentially grow his wealth and power and secure it for generations to come. Why not step into that open door? What if this is God just blessing him for being courageous and going into Jerusalem to rebuild the walls? Can you not hear the, the lies of like the prosperity gospel coming in there? What if this is just an open door that God's blessing you to enrich yourself? But Nehemiah knows better. He knows better. Again, verse 15, he fears God. And in the kingdom of God, the ends don't justify the means. Wealth is not wrong. In fact, it often is a sign of God's great blessing upon a person. But it matters greatly how you acquire that wealth. It matters greatly what you do with that wealth if you have it. And so fearing God and loving the people entrusted to his care, Nehemiah goes beyond entitlement and into compassion. As we read, there's a huge cost to this. Every day, he has 150 people at his table. And on top of that, as an official of the Persian Empire, he's sometimes obligated to entertain delegates and visitors and their entourages from other nations. So every day, an ox and six sheep and six birds are prepared for food, all kinds of wine every 10 days. As it says there in verse 14, he's the governor in this territory for 12 years. So doing the math, 12 years at this pace means that Nehemiah is serving up 4,380 oxen, 26,280 sheep, and 26,280 birds at his table. Those are some massive herds and flocks. Swimming pools worth of wine. And if the people are not being taxed to pay that, where is it coming from? From his own pocket, at his own expense, he says. So not only is Nehemiah not enriching himself at the expense of his people, he's going into the red. He's taking the loss. He is making himself poorer than he is entitled to be so that others might live. And this is how mercy works in the kingdom of God. For people to thrive, for people to live, Someone always pays a cost. Someone always foregoes entitlements and what they might rightfully claim. Parents pay that cost for your kids. Church leaders pay that cost for the church, at least they're meant to. Neighbors pay that cost for neighbors. Friends pay that cost for friends, family for family. Compassion and love are not free. Someone behind the scenes of love and compassion, someone is always shouldering the heavy burden. And in this way, Nehemiah points here to the greatest picture of mercy. As God the Son 
Jesus Christ is entitled to our wholehearted devotion. What does Jesus do? Everything from us. To all the glories and the riches of heaven. Left to ourselves, we reject him. And in our rebellion, he is then entitled to leave us there, to leave us separated from him forever, underneath his condemnation, underneath the wrath because of our sin. Instead of that, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Jesus rescues us. He goes infinitely beyond his entitlements. Though rich, yet for our sakes becoming poor, that in him we might receive the inheritance, the, the glorious riches of the inheritance of God's kingdom. Though worthy of all of our service, he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to offer up his life as a ransom for many. We are the ones deservingly under the heavy burden of sin, being crushed by the weight of our own rebellion and all of its consequences. But Jesus takes that burden upon himself. Isaiah 53, God crushes his own son rather than allowing that burden to remain on and crush us. The gospel, the, the good news of our salvation is that at, at infinite cost to himself, Jesus goes beyond what he's entitled to and he shows us compassion, sacrificial, costly love. Jesus shows us mercy. And in response, we become people who display the same mercy, who aren't so hung up on our entitlements and what we think that we're due, but who instead remember the weightier matter the weightier matter of mercy and who are willing to step in and pay the cost to show it to other people. This week, we witnessed an incredible display of this. Uh, one of the most powerful, I think, that I've seen in a, in a while. And one that both humbled me and made me really grateful for the real difference that the gospel of Jesus Christ can and does make in the world. Just over a year ago, Botham Jean a man named Botham Jean, uh, was murdered in his own apartment by an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger. Uh, she mistook his apartment for hers, and thinking that she was in her own apartment and that he was an intruder, pulled out a gun, shot, and killed him. This Wednesday, she received a 10-year prison sentence for, for that murder. Now, I'm not a judge or a juror. Was that the right sentence? I don't know. Uh, would the sentence have been the same? If under those same circumstances, a white person had been shot in their home by an off-duty officer who was black, I don't know. I hope so. I hope so. But rising out of all of the pain of that, rising out of all the complexity of that this week, is a moment where Botham's younger brother named Brant shared his impact statement with the court. And in that impact statement, he looked across the room at his brother's killer, and over the course of a couple minutes said, paraphrasing, I think you know how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. I forgive you. If you ask him, God will forgive you too. And then he went on to say, I want the best for you. I want the best for you. And he asked the judge then for permission to stand up from where he was sitting and to walk across the courtroom and to embrace the woman that had shot and killed his, bro her, his brother. That church is what the mercy of God sounds like, looks like, smells like, tastes like.
the cost, think about this, the cost that that young man, Brant John, paid. As he said, how much she took from him. What is he entitled to? He's entitled to harbor hatred and disgust and ill will in his heart toward Amber Geiger for the rest of his life. And a lot of unanchored people, a lot of unanchored social justice warriors are furious at Brant John right now, wishing that he had done exactly that. But knowing the mercy of God, even citing it as the motive for his own words and actions, Brant John chooses to forgive and to walk toward her and to embrace her. And this is such a tangible picture of Jesus' response to you and I. I think you know how much you've taken from us. We could imagine Jesus saying to us, our sin and all of its consequences, all the corruption that it brings to our own lives and to God's good creation, requiring him to take that cost of redemption upon himself. I think you know how much you've taken from us, but I forgive you and I want the best for you. And then like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, hiking up his garments and running to embrace us. At the cross of Jesus Christ, all the justice of God meets all the mercy of God. Righteousness and, pit and peace kiss each other, as the psalmist puts it. The weightier matters of justice and mercy meet in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. At the cross, God goes beyond what his own law he goes beyond his own law into what is right. No more will there, be, will there be ceremonial sacrifices to temporarily absolve our guilt. But full justice will now come in Jesus' sacrifice once for all. In that same moment, Jesus goes infinitely beyond what he's entitled to so that all of his compassion, all of his love, all of his mercy might be poured out on us. And because this is how we enter the kingdom of God, it must also characterize how we live inside the kingdom of God. How we live as representatives of the kingdom of God in the world, which God loves. Saved by the justice and mercy of God, we are those who pursue these weightier matters. Many years earlier, Nehemiah touched this reality. And he got it. And his example and his decision to stop the building of the wall looks forward to the day when all of God's justice and all of God's mercy would meet perfectly in Jesus. And so church, anchored in the fear of God, go beyond what is merely legal into what is right. Anchored in the fear of God, go beyond what you're entitled to and into sacrificial, costly love. It is by God's justice and mercy that we are saved so may we be people of his justice and mercy in the world. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus, and specifically this morning, the divine truth that you are completely just and completely merciful, and that the cross is the place where both of those things can be fulfilled and where it becomes our hope and our salvation. We ask now that what we do and how we live and the way that we love become increasingly a worthy response to the justice and mercy that has saved us. And we pray this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, 
visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.